0: I feel like we don't talk enough about the origins of the term STEM. One history that I've read says that it was remixed as STEM after spending time previously as METS, among one or two others. Don't judge, but I'm a lifelong METS fan, so this wouldn't have been a problem for me. But here's a different, interesting thing to consider. STEM, as a hunk of education parlance, has become about as mainstream as education parlance gets literally it's an acronym for science, technology, engineering, and math. You probably know that. But have you considered whether we might think differently about STEM if, in fact, the M it stands for mathematics came first? STEM has come to represent quite a few things, but I find that more often than not, math has very little, if any, explicit role. An embedded one, yes almost always represented by the many possible intersections a teacher might amplify between math and the popsicle bridge being built by a group of students or by the volume of water sample that a kid takes from a local creek. My point is that it's the activity, the creekside exploration or the building that has come to mean STEM in people's minds and not the individual subject itself. And I think there are a lot of reasons that that's a good thing. But could it be that when we glorify the identity of the scientist or the engineer, I won't even get into how much we've inflated the fantasy of the technologist, that we might take it sometimes as a license to continue ignoring a really critical problem with cultivating those other identities? It's that we're still not great at math. Those angles on the bridge being built, the calculations that measure force and strength and span, or the patterns one of those students may or may not gather from the water quality data they're collecting. This is all math. In a Pew Research Center post from February of 2017, Drew DeSilver noted among many other things that when scores were tallied from a couple of international tests administered longitudinally, that is over time, between the mid 90s and 2015, the US ranked 38th out of 71 countries who took the test in math. Middling would be generous. We ranked worse in math than science and reading. And when scientists themselves were asked how they thought the U.S. education system stacked up against others, about 16% considered us above average internationally. Math education is a problem. You might have guessed what we'll be talking about this week. Meet my guests.
1: So uh, my name is Babette Muller, and I'm a researcher and program developer at the EDC Center for Children and Technology. And my work focuses on um, improving the education of students with disabilities and primarily through teacher education efforts. And I'm one of the lead developers of the Math for All professional development programs.
2: I'm uh, Marvin Cohen, and I'm with Bank Street College of Education, been here for Probably 40 years and my real passion is to help teachers understand that they can do mathematics and that they are mathematicians and that all children can be mathematicians if you give them math to do.
3: I'm Nesta Marshall, an instructor and advisor in the teaching and learning department here at Bank Street College of Education. My um, desire is to enable teachers to find the right tools that students need in order to function optimally in the classroom.
0: Buckle up for some real talk. About some solutions to our math challenges that might seem simple in a lot of cases, but they certainly aren't obvious. If they were, we would have figured out a long time ago that, for example, school math and real math, as Marvin puts it during this interview, should not and cannot be such different things. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll rate and review the show wherever you downloaded the episode subscriptions plus ratings equal more ears supporting the stuff we care about thanks this is no such thing a podcast about the promise and reality of learning with technology i'm mark lesser thank you all for joining the show i'm really excited to have this conversation for a few different reasons um not least I, I work my my day job is uh I do a lot of work in the area of uh STEM education and working on issues of equity in STEM. Um and the M gets left off an awful lot. It's uh, I work more in STE than in STEM. Um <laughs> So, I'm excited to talk about math for, for a few different reasons, but, but I, actually, the place I want to start is a really selfish one. I'm going to turn this into a little bit of a therapy session um, and s- share that. I, so, I'm a parent and uh, I hang out a lot with parents. And as you all may have experienced at some point, one of the things that I hear all the time from other parents or or I witness as they're interacting with their kids is, you know, their kids will ask them a question about math. And, uh, you know, they'll say, well, you know, ask dad, I'm not a math person Uh, or, you know, ask ask you, you know, me and me and mom aren't really math people. So it would make sense that you're not a math person. Um, so there's, there are a bunch of, of perceptions there. One is the idea that, you know, our, our, there are genetics to, uh, cognition and, and the way that we, uh, learn and sort of take things in, in the world. So that's, that's one question I have for you all. Um, then there's, uh, there's a question of practice. So, you know, what is the culture, uh, that, that we're learning within that's making us think we are or aren't? uh, quote unquote math people. Um, and, and, and it goes on, but, but I'll admit, uh, for starters that, uh, I was labeled early on as not a math person. Uh, I, I, um, completely shut down when I started to get D's and F's when I was in seventh grade in math. Uh, and I argue to this day that, um, I'm not, not a math person. I just haven't yet had a math teacher that, um, uh, or experiences that have helped me grow, uh, through math. So, uh, my question for you all, and I'm going to start with you, Babette, um, what's going on when people say, I'm not a math person.
1: I mean, we our work is really based on the assumption that all children can and need to learn mathematics. There's no such a thing as a math person or not a math person. It's, it's uh, just that. I mean, nobody would say that about reading, right? Nobody would say I'm not a reader. It's okay for me not to learn how to read. You know, I mean, it's mathematics is so fundamental to our functioning and success in life and society that everybody needs to learn mathematics and can learn mathematics. The problem is that kids often get turned off from learning mathematics by teachers who may not know how to reach them, uh, who may not understand that students learn mathematics in different ways. Teachers are trained, and we all grew up learning mathematics in a certain way, which is very procedural. So so that there's one way teachers know one way of teaching mathematics often, which is procedural, and that can turn off many kids and and keep them from learning mathematics.
2: I guess I I think of mathematics and I think about schools and I think there are really there really is very little mathematics in most schools. I when I work with graduate students, I tell them the reason they think that they're a failure at mathematics is because they did school math. And school math, as Babette said, is often just procedural uh, work with numbers. Whereas mathematics is really the science of pattern and really thinking about how things connect. Uh, National Council of Teachers of Math say mathematics is a series of verbs. Explore, invent, prove, apply, and I would add, argue about what you get Um, So I think that it's um, it's hard for people to say that, oh, they they were terrible in mathematics because they probably haven't done very much mathematics. Uh, And I've heard the same thing that you've heard, Mark, about, oh, I'm not good in mathematics. And I've heard that along ethnic lines and I've heard that uh, along economic lines. But it's so important. And when I. Gave this little shtick to a preschool teacher. She said, well, in other words, mathematics is what they do before they come to school. They explore, they invent, they prove and apply. And then around age four or five, they go to school and they're so old, No, 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 do this page. And that's your mathematics. That's not mathematics, that's school math.
0: Nesta, what's been your experience? So when
3: I listen to you, Mark, I think of how disempowering labels are when we label uh, the individual or the person. yeah. What math for all does is it helps us to identify what is working for that person's kind of mind or not working for that person's kind of mind and what can we do about it in terms of next steps and think of how liberating uh that is how it encourages uh risk taking in contrast to someone uh shutting down and feeling that i am not going to be ever good at doing this math task.
1: I want to sort of uh, jump in with an example here. I'm thinking of a special education teacher that we worked with recently, and she was working in a resource room with um, kids with moderate disabilities, and she when we were planning math lessons together, she always said, "Oh, my kids, they they can't do this. It's too too challenging, too difficult." Yeah. And then we were starting to work on a lesson that or a geometry lesson. And she again, she said, "Oh no, my kids, they don't." you know, they they can't, it's way too complicated. And then, but she went ahead and tried it. And then she came back and she, her mind was blown about what her kids were able to accomplish. And in fact, they were able to do things because they had such strong spatial sense. They were able to do things that the other students in the general education classrooms were unable to solve. They were able to solve the problem at a level that was much higher and it blew her mind and it helped her to discover Areas of strength in in her students that she would never had expected and and those were students like under autism spectrum disorder you know so uh, the students who were sort of you know had some significant um, disabilities but nevertheless could do very well and if and especially if if she was able to frame tasks sort of in a spatial manner they were able to really excel
0: let's talk about that um... I want to, uh, hear from, from you all a little bit about the project, um, math for all, cause this is, you are now at a stage in the project where, uh, you're really working on sort of getting the word out and, um, disseminating the story for, for what you've done and, and what you've found, uh, in these years of the project. Um, so, um, I wonder, uh, Babette, if you can sort of set us up with um, a high-level picture of how this research was set up. And um, I'm curious to hear then from uh, the others, what if you had one or two hopes going into this research about what you might find, um, what would they be? So, Babette.
1: Sure. So first of all, let me just tell you what MathVAL is. It's MathVAL, It's a professional development program for teachers in grades kindergarten through fifth grade. And the goal is to help them make high quality standards-based mathematics accessible to the broad range of students that you find in today's general education classrooms. And that includes students with disabilities. So we're working with teachers on helping them make um, rigorous mathematics accessible to the broad range of learners in their classrooms. And we have been collaborating for quite a while. We started um, in the early 2000s, or shortly after the, stand, the new standards from the National Council of Teachers of Mathematics came out, and then we had a very strong message about equity, and also made a strong point about all students include students with disabilities, which traditionally was not the case. Traditionally, you know, even though there was an attempt to include everybody, but often students with disabilities were still treated as separate and they weren't expected to um, achieve the same standards as other students. So so that message was very good to find that in in the NCTM standards. And, um, but the problem is, and, and still is, that teachers are often not prepared to, to do this, to implement instruction in that way, because they are not trained to work with heterogeneous groups of students that that include students with disabilities. So there's a great need for professional development. And that's when we sort of started way back in the early 2000s. And we had a number you know, two separate NSF grants to help us develop this multimedia professional development program. We're using, um, you know, a lot of video and, uh, you know, and print materials. So it's multiple, multiple media, um, with, with the teachers and, um, and we uh, had funding to develop the materials. We had, the, and then funding to test it out with, uh, to field test it with different teachers. So we were able to develop this program with input from teachers and staff developers across different parts of the country. And most currently, we had a large grant from the um, U.S. Department of Education, the Institute of Education Studies, to conduct an efficacy study very you know rigorous gold standard type of research study to um, demonstrate the impact of this program both on teachers as well as students and hmm. we've been working in collaboration with Chicago Public Schools for the last four years to implement this study.
0: Marvin Nesta, going into the work, uh, if you could name one or two hopes, that you had going in about what you might be able to say coming out? What were they?
2: I think I was pretty clear that for anything to happen for kids, it had to happen for teachers also. Mm. And that the teachers really had to know and understand mathematics, not just as a bunch of procedures, but as this study of relationships, explore, invent, prove, apply, uh, argue, and for the teachers to really, see the dynamics and the complexity of what they were doing, and then to help them look at things that they were doing anyway and say to themselves, wait a minute, where is the mathematics here? They're telling me the mathematics is to memorize this thing. That's not the mathematics. The mathematics is to understand the relationship of these numbers and how to manipulate them in your head in a way that is meaningful and to... For me to do all of this with the teacher in a way where they can't say, I don't have the time, the principal won't let me, the school won't let me, they won't get into Harvard, you know, all those kinds of uh, questions. So uh, with that as a goal and thinking about selecting and creating uh, situations for children where the, the sort of the jargony thing that's being said nowadays, which I really subscribe to, is problems that have low floors and high ceilings Mm. so that everybody can get in. But some people will go who knows where. And some people will muck around right where they are. And um, that both are very rich experiences. Uh, So that was my hope.
0: So, To, to clarify, that the two hopes were, one, that you would have something to say about um, that for any of this to reach students, it takes a certain kind of intervention with teachers. So that's one. And then the second being that um, we can create an environment for mathematics that presents itself as a as a landscape within which um learners can sort of explore where they are and grow as they will um that that doesn't have to be limited to uh well certainly not by the perception of their deficits
2: Mm
3: -hmm.
0: great nesta what what were your uh hopes going in?
3: So my hope was that teachers would really reflect on their teaching practices and student learning outcomes as a way to help them um, help inform what they are noticing students doing, what that information is telling them in terms of what to do next, and really thinking of how can I provide better access uh, for my students to be able to do these mathematical tasks. Uh, The second hope was that the students or children would um, be equipped with the language that they would need to self-advocate for Mm -hmm. the tools that work best for their kind of mind.
0: What would that look
2: like?
3: Well, I'm thinking of a child who might need to read a word problem by himself independently to get the first take of that problem maybe uh do a little bit of exploration on his own before joining a small group for deeper and further exploration and Mm. that that child would be able to articulate to a teacher that i need to have this uh Time this space uh, before joining this collaborative experience of exploring uh, the math activity that is in front of us.
0: So, Nesta, I want to I want to continue on uh, down that road, and and I want to ask you a question about the how the student experience is different in the context of Math for All. Um, than in what their standard experience might be, um, in the classroom. Right. So paint a picture that helps people understand what it looks like to do this with, um, these innovative practices, and and um, what the contrast is with with how I might have learned math.
3: So I'm thinking of a classroom teacher who participated in our training, and uh, she was um, presenting one of the problems of the month uh, to her students. It was called measuring up. And that particular um, problem, Uh, centered on children thinking of proportional reasoning, um, measurement, scaling, and so on and so forth. That was the goal of the lesson. And as she, uh, to give you a little um, background in terms of what the problem entailed, uh, soup was being made and uh, one person's portion uh, comprised of let's say two carrots, three onions, five chunks of meat. Right. And if you were inviting several people over to your home to serve them soup, how many of each of the ingredients will you need uh, so that everyone would have the right proportion? Okay. Well, okay. So what this uh, classroom looked like, Mark, was really uh, fascinating in that here was one student who actually had paper plates to represent the bowls that will be served to the individuals invited, and he had some colored tiles nearby that uh, were represented the carrots, the onions, and the meat, and that was his way of being able to figure out the solution to the problem. There mm-hmm. was another child who had a chart that uh, horizontally listed the amounts of the, the, the ingredients and vertically the number of people so that that was that child's way of Taking in the information, making sense of it. And there were sort of variations between those two examples. So, for example, uh, there was one child, instead of using numbers on the chart, the child was using uh, drawing pictures of the um, ingredients uh, to represent uh, uh, them in such a way that when they were doing the total tallying, Uh, the picture served as a visual for helping them to be able to um, denote X amount of carrots, onions and chunks of meat. So the whole idea is that there is not just one pathway, to getting to the solution. There are multiple ways and in a math for all teachers classroom, we are respecting and we are celebrating those different ways in which we learn and which we produce our responses. And that's a far cry from what you and I were <laughs> accustomed to to in our days in elementary school, which was like the one size fits all deal, there's just one way to do it, uh, singular uh, route, and you dare think outside the box of a, a different way to arrive at the answer.
0: Yeah, I remember feeling extremely self-conscious about the fact that I had to use my fingers um, at certain points uh, to do math. And I remember feeling like, um, you you know, the sort of comparative mind put me into a place where, you know, I was sort of made to feel uh, ashamed because I needed the manipulative. But it sounds like part of what you're saying is that... um, Math for all, for starters, is about setting up a a series of practices that um, helps to appreciate that young people are going to make meaning with these concepts in very different, uh, using very different strategies, and um, that that's okay. And so, part of this seems like a culture setting um, with educators. Does that? feel right?
3: Um, Oh, definitely. It really involves sensitizing uh, your learning environment, that classroom in which we all see ourselves as learning to get together, growing together, where different kinds of minds and the way they work are uh, celebrated, showcased, uh, promoted, because we all agree that there is not one way to do this math problem that is before us.
0: Marvin, I think one of the things so we're we're going down the a, a road right now that I think will put a lot of people um so you know I'm I'm I know a little bit about math education I'm riding in my car right now I hear us talking and I'm thinking oh yeah that's learning styles right um uh you know there were cognitive psychologists 20 years ago 15 years ago who were writing books about learning styles and and um that's not exactly uh, where things are, right? I, and so, so I kind of want to update people's thinking a little bit about the difference between what we're talking about and, and learning styles and um, sort of what we do know about, uh, you know, brain research as it relates to um, how, we, how we take in and make meaning with math.
2: Well, it's kind of funny because we, we were just um, talking about that. While you were adjusting volume and stuff, um, and it's really um, it's really about learning rather than learning styles. That we all have our ways of learning, and it's not one one learning style for everything. Rather, it's that we look at a problem and we think about, well, how would I like to do this? How what makes sense? And um, to do that, we have to. When, you know, in math, for all we do it explicitly. We ask teachers to do it explicitly, but um, in a classroom, the teacher, we ask teachers to do it also. Which is, what are the demands of the task? What do you need to know and be able to do to be successful at this task? And the child, with the help of the teacher, can try to figure that out. Um, and it's, it's not that you come in with a set of Um, styles, you know, a skill set of styles, but rather you look at things and decide which of your strengths can you bring forward. And I think that some people call that, oh, the kid is thinking out of the box. And I knew a really fine teacher who said, no, 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 no. If you're not thinking out of the box, you're not thinking because you're just doing a procedure. And I think that's what we are looking for, and we we take as a given something that um, psychologists have called a growth mindset, which is that you start where you are, but you can go with it, you can become all kinds of different things and do all kinds of problems and there's a lot of support for that now. Uh, people are becoming aware of it uh, and it's uh, it's a very, very important thing to appreciate. And it is the difference between what so many of us experienced as children, which was all procedural math. And uh, teachers, teachers are amazingly responsive to this notion. They say, wow, these kids can do it. I thought they couldn't. And it's, uh, it's really a lot of fun to watch them. <laughs> Because of the liberation that they feel,
1: and if I could add to that, I mean, in, we're in particular encouraging teachers to look beyond just the mathematical demands of um, math activities to look at the whole child. And we're, you know, we're we're introducing them to a framework that's based on uh, neuropsychology and and that that uh, looks at learning through eight different lenses, including, um, you know the more traditional ways of like memory and higher order thinking, but there's also spatial uh, thinking. There's uh, sequential thinking, there's psychosocial um, functioning, there's motor coordination. So there's, there's all different kinds of aspects that can either hinder or get, you know, or, or facilitate a student's engagement with a task. And it's important for teachers to pay attention to those.
0: Mm -hmm. So um, Marvin uh, brought up the work of, uh, there have been many cognitive psychologists and, and, uh, education psychologists over time who have worked on the idea of growth mindset. I think, uh, lately this has come up interestingly, uh, a lot. And even I've heard parents talk about growth mindset, I think because they see it in Ted talks, honestly. Um, but this is work that uh, Carol Dweck, among many others, made very um, popular. And that work started in the 70s, um, which, you know, so frustrating thing
2: about education. Yeah.
0: yeah. So that's in what,
2: 1970.
0: That's what I was going to say is is uh, wonderful that that she's being recognized for this work. On the other hand, it's it's taken us uh, 40 years to to realize that it's important Um but I'm trying to think I'm thinking sort of uh, about an analogy that might ring true to folks that aren't inside the education bubble. Right. So um, one of the things that I, I'll I'm going to take a stab and, and you, you guys grade me and, and tell me how I am with with the um, the analogy. I, I think folks are coming around to the idea that you. Um, There are practices in the mind and the body. And we think about things like meditation and yoga as um, things that can help us to um, to sort of help our body remember what it's capable of. Right. And uh, so in yoga, you know, I might not start out with the most complicated pose in yoga, but I'm going to start where I am. And then and then over time you know, I can grow to be a more flexible, uh, person. I'm going to work on my breathing. That's going to go in, in, you know, line with my, my, uh, flexibility and, and strength. Um, and with meditation, this idea that, you know, we can, we can train aspects of the way that our mind works, um, to help, um, add a little bit of space to help us, um, tap the most productive parts. And, and so, how is that for an analogy for what's going on in math for all? Because, cause I, that's how I'm thinking of it, right? I've read, um, I've read a little bit about the project. I've, I've, um, I've watched the videos. I've, I've, uh, poked around a lot in, in the work. And, um, and I think about my myself as a sixth grader or a seventh grader. And I, you know, I, I think that if I had had a math teacher who was, uh, more like a yoga instructor, um, and giving me options, uh, you know, maybe you can turn this into the next pose, but maybe you want to stay right where you are. Um, I think these things would have the, the spirit of that, uh, guidance, I think would have, um, changed how I was kind of enculturated, uh, around math. So, so, um, Babette, uh, what do you think of, of my, uh, analogy?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's a it's a great analogy. I mean, I always think, you know, for me, the most poignant example is often the area of psychosocial functioning, mm-hmm. because teachers often complain about students' weaknesses in those areas, and they can, you know, like, get in the way of them being successful in small group work or in large group work. You have to
0: explain explain psychosocial. Psychosocial
1: is, means, you know, being able to use language to communicate. With each other or um, to collaborate you know behavior, social behavior to you know for students to collaborate to share to you know resolve conflicts with each other hmm. in the classroom and um, so teachers often complain about weaknesses for, for of students in those areas, but without really realizing. That many of these skills are th- skills that need to be taught. And we cannot necessarily assume that students come into the classroom with you know prepared with those skills. True. Um, and and so that's that's an area where, where students can really grow. They're not stuck on where they are, you know, even if they have weaknesses in this area. It's something that can be worked on. And often teachers who teach math, they don't necessarily think that. You know, oh, I should be teaching my kids be, beha- you know, how to behave with each other, but but it needs to be taught just as much as, you know, language needs to be taught and and math content needs to be taught. I mean, behavior needs to be taught and routines need to be set up and uh, to help students better interact with each other. I'm not sure if that works with your analogy, but I mean, it sort of made me think about that point, you know, because often teachers, when we work with them, they get this, aha, oh, I really need to, pay some attention to this area and I need to observe how do students work with each other? I can't just assume I give them a task and they know how to work with each other and talk to each other and and solve a problem with with these together. You know,
0: Marvin, a question for you Um, as an educator, researcher, um, somebody who's been in this field for a very long time. Tell me the, give us an example of the coolest uh, math project that characterizes the uh, the process that you described earlier. It was it was invent. Um, tell me tell me again the the stages.
2: Invent, prove, uh, and apply. Invent, uh, explore, prove, and apply. Explore, invent, prove, and apply.
0: So give me give me your favorite exemplar. Like if I was if I said Marvin, come uh, I want you to do a keynote on uh, what great math education looks like. What's your favorite example?
2: Well, I I guess um, I try not to think about favorites, but because there are so many (laughs) and they're just all different. Um, And I think about a very simple problem that actually works for probably third graders uh, on up because adults have trouble with it also. Mm -hmm. And it's a problem where. actually second graders, maybe even where kids, um, where whoever the participants are asked to, uh, think about a dartboard mm-hmm. and throw some, throw six darts at a dartboard and the numbers on the dartboard are one, three, five, seven, nine.
0: Okay. Everybody, oh. everybody listening should, should close their eyes <laughs> and do this. Right. You're looking at a dartboard on the dartboard are the numbers one, three, three. five, seven, nine.
2: And you throw six darts and they all land on the dartboard. OK. And now you want to know which of these scores is the one that they got. OK? okay. And the scores are and I'm going to make them up, so bear with me. Four wow. let me I'll write them down as I do it. Four, 13, 23, 28 uh fifty one and sixty six okay and people will muck around with that problem on their own at first just trial and error for ten minutes some people if you have a foreign student or you know child or adult who's not familiar with what a dartboard is mm-hmm. you have to provide them the language Okay. and maybe a picture because they're not understanding. They don't have the receptive language. If you just say it, I mean, it's very hard to do the way we're doing it right now. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and then some people will make charts and some people will get these little snap cubes that a lot of teachers have and start to do with it. And they'll do a lot of number facts because they have to be adding the one and the three and the five and the seven and the seven and the three and like, which of these numbers is possible. Mm. Um, And they'll start to say, gee, what is this? And I better get more organized about this. And I will tell you that they spend 40, 50 minutes on it and not all of them get it, but there is only one answer there. And they say, oh, that's because, and the because is a very critical mathematical concept that you start experiencing in second grade and becomes critical in seventh, eighth, ninth grade and for the rest of your mathematical career. And it's um, wonderful to watch them and to hear them say, and I'm purposely not saying the concept.
0: (laughs) I was going to say, you're killing me. (laughs) Um,
2: They they say, wow, I never thought of doing that with a seven-year-old or an eight-year-old. Well, why not? You want them to learn their number facts. Well, I give them a number fact sheet and I ask them to add it up. Yeah, but that's dreary and Mm. that's procedural. Whereas the number tumbling they do in that 40 minutes so brings home the whole idea of this very basic concept in mathematics that um, is very, very important in second grade and third grade, but becomes critical and ongoing once kids start to do positive and negative numbers Hmm. in seventh or eighth grade or whenever they do it. Um, And... You know, it's giving them that opportunity to learn the mathematics rather than saying, learn your number facts. Come mm-hmm. back tomorrow. Right. We're going to give you a test. And, you know, you need to talk to people about that. You need to talk to people saying you need to be able to organize things, spatial organization as well as organizing the chart. If you choose to do a chart, do you have to do a chart? No. You can do it another way. Do you have the receptive language to know what the teacher's talking about? I don't know. You know, we have, I mean, I've been in schools um, in Manhattan on the, uh, you know, different parts of the city where there are 11, 12, 13 different languages spoken at home. Hmm. You know, and the teacher says they get along fine on the playground. They can talk to each other communicate can do whatever they need to do yeah but the language you demand is different
1: hmm. you know
2: and there's different kinds of language there's social language and there's mathematical language and there's you know language related to fiction and nonfiction and you know all those things and um, opportunity to learn is what it's all about and if you don't have those related, neurodevelopmental and mathematical skills, or some experience with them, it's not going to happen for you.
1: Mm -hmm. It's
2: just going to be that much harder. And people are going to think that you don't know when it's that you haven't had the experiences that you need to have. Next podcast, we'll talk about the answer.
0: Just the concept. That's all I want.
2: (laughs) Just the concept. The big idea. Play around with it. Make a dark (laughs) world for yourself. (laughs) I, I mean love it. That's family great. and friends love it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Discovery-based learning.
0: <laughs> okay, I will I will I will do some discovery on that. Um but I think one of the one of the points that you make is that's really important is um that in the school of math where I where I grew up, um you know, the way I assumed I needed to be able to do that. Um, right. I needed to close my eyes and be able to have an answer to this. Um, and that's actually a great example where, uh, my generation is missing, um, a whole lot, uh, right. Because there are actually, you as an educator would have put a series of strategies at my fingertips that I can use or not use. Um, can I
2: interrupt and say, I wouldn't put a series of strategies at your fingertips, Rather, what I would do, I would listen, and I would say, "Oh, look at Mark's strategy. He's do he's made a chart." Right. You and know. So, if you want. Yeah. Or I, th- I think look my strategy. At best strategy.
0: I, I was. I meant more. Um, uh, you like I'd have manipulatives and I'd mm-hmm. have sort of yeah, ways of, of discovering tools. Thank you. Yeah. Um, that makes a lot of sense. So, um, so I I really like your example. I think it's great. Um, so I do want to talk about learning disability, right, because there's a, an aspect of this work that is about um, the uh, difference in learners and um, and how an educator can be prepared to work, for example, in an inclusion classroom, which means that uh, you're we're seeing students, uh, you know, on um, uh, sort of all points in a spectrum of uh, learners who uh are are uh typically developing um to to use sort of uh psychology speak and or or atypically developing um and so so a big part of this is about um that practice right and um the truth if i understand it correctly is that there there really aren't that many learning disabilities um, specifically around math Um, but rather that, um, there are strategies and practices for educators that, um, help us work with learner assets in ways that those educators haven't had before that we need to create more sort of, um, competent and patient systems for, um, am I getting that right? Uh, can, can, uh, Babette, can you sort of speak to that? And let's talk a little bit about this, um, about learning disability and how math for all, um, you know, relates to what we're seeing around special education in K-12 right now.
1: Yeah, definitely. I mean, there are, um, various things that can get into the, in the way of students being successful in mathematics. But there are very few um, mathematics specific learning disabilities. Often there are issues, um, you know, a lot of the teachers report issues such as um, memory, you know, getting in the way of students for learning mathematics, language issues can get in the way, um, sometimes motor coordination issues can get in the way for students to use tools appropriately um, and um, what we're working with teachers on is to um, carefully observe students to better understand where their areas of strengths and needs are and then to sort of uh, you know look at the mathematics that they're trying to teach and see if there's ways to uh, redesign mathematics activities so that, these barriers that may not be essential to the goal of the mathematics can be eliminated, so that there is not, you know, um, you know, if 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 you have an activity where where it doesn't matter, where, where the goal is not necessarily for students um, to to uh, deal with language, then you know you can translate, you know, a word problem into images, or you can re- you can read a word problem out loud, where mm. you know a student's ability to read should not necessarily get in the way to solve a math problem, you know, if that's the student's problem, you know, so maybe what the student need is to have somebody read the problem out loud for them so that they can actually do the problem solving, which is the real math, you know, that that you want to get to. I mean, it really depends. We're we're asking teachers to do careful analysis of the individual student, the mathematical activities, and also of the goals, because what we're cautioning them... from it, force is to not undermine the rigor of the mathematical goals. We want we're encouraging them to keep those intact. But if there's barriers that are not essential to the goals, by all means, they should be eliminated so that the student can actually get to the math, and that there's not other barriers that keep them the student from getting to the math.
0: Um, Nesta or Marvin, do you do you want to add to that?
3: I think I can give an example. And before I do, I want to underscore that math for all is a strengths based approach in contrast to the deficit model. So we look at uh, students in terms of what are they bringing to us? What funds of knowledge and skills do they have? And how can we use those strengths and even their affinities or interests to serve as buttresses or leverages to help them in their areas of need? So here's a youngster um, in one of our math for all teachers uh, classroom, who was um, very strong at being able to decode words and Read a math problem. No difficulty whatsoever in doing that. In fact, he served as the reader for the group, and this happened to be a self contained uh, classroom. However, he was challenged in terms of his fine motor abilities. And in this particular lesson, where students were asked to find lines of symmetry. Uh, based on varied uh, shapes that were on a worksheet. uh, His teacher uh, knew that he might encounter some difficulty with being able to sort of process all of these shapes on one sheet at one time and find the lines of symmetry. And in addition, uh, she felt that he would benefit from having those shapes uh, cut out individually to manipulate in order to fold the shapes to find the lines of symmetry. Mm -hmm. So he went about um, cutting the shape out, but she cut around the shape instead of cutting on the outline of the shape. Gave uh, the shapes uh, to the student And notice that even though she had provided him with a support that she felt would help him to make meaning of this particular um, lesson or task, uh, he folded the shape on the cut outline that the teacher made rather than thinking of the outline of the shape itself. Does that make sense?
0: Say, Say it one more time.
3: So she, let's say the shape is a heart, instead of cutting the heart out on the outline Mm -hmm. of the shape, she cut away from that outline and just made like, let's say, a a square.
0: (laughs) Around the heart, right.
3: Right, around the heart when the child was folding the shape to find the line of symmetry, he used the new line, which was the teacher's line that she had cut out, rather than the outline of the shape. And that child became um, quite uh, frustrated because he was not able to do the task successfully. However, that teacher based on that learning outcome was able to, by her observation, Uh, she was able to see that, wait a minute, um, I need to retool this adaptation that I made for the child by ensuring that he, that the shape was cut along its original outline. And in addition to that, she thought of how she wanted this child to have more ownership over his learning and autonomy. And thought of providing him the next time around with adaptive scissors so that he can do the cutting himself around the shade. Mm-hmm. And that that that's what I think is so um trans formative about the experiences that teachers have when they do our math for all training, that they are discovering uh, new ways in which to help children make meaning of what is in front of them. And I think another important point to uh, state is in math for all, we actually have our teachers enact the activity or problem that they are going to give their students. So they go through that experience wearing the hat of the child. And in doing that, they're able to um, really (laughs) get a firmer sense of what am I actually asking this child to do when I put in front of him or her a particular problem. Through that process, they're able then to consider where might my, my student find success when doing this problem? Where might my student find an impasse? Where What what may serve as the breakdown or the stopping point or as the uh, a way for them to not be able to complete the task successfully? And given that, what can I do preemptively? Not going to give them this task and let them go off and just flounder, but what can I put in place as a support, as a tool, as a a suggested strategy for that student to be able to then um, work through the task um, with uh, greater success?
0: Great. Uh, that's, that's a, uh, I think a really good, you know, illustration where, where things change. And I'm thinking about, um, uh, you know, the, the perception of that student who, uh, who, you know, uh, folded on the line that was the actual shape of the paper and not the shape of the outline within the paper, um, you, you know that it it's a fine line between what uh, n- now you know society perceives as um, a disability versus what they perceive as genius, right? So uh, there, in fact, that student had it exactly right and was seeing outside of um, the the problem in a really interesting way, which um, for me brings up the, the issue of, of what these labels end up meaning for our capacity as a society to produce the kind of thinking and the kind of problem solving that we really need in the world. Um, so, so one of the things I did in preparation for this conversation is I, I, it was very difficult. It took many, many hours. I Googled, um, uh, I Googled, uh, math disabi- you know, famous people with math disabilities, uh, or, or learning disabilities. Um, and I'll let everybody do that on their own if, if they're interested in, but, but one of the things that really struck me is that I don't think we've, we've completely learned yet. Um, that, that when we, when we ha- let these labels influence, our practice and how we think about how education works we really limit um, the, the ability of people to influence the world around them and, and participate fully um, because when I did that uh, and, and I'll, let you, I'll let you all do it on your own but um, you know people love to put Einstein on that list and Tesla was on several lists that I looked at as being um, dyslexic. Um, you know, and, and on and on it, the the list is actually extremely, uh, depending on where you look extremely long. And, uh, there are many, many people who, um, you know, have, have proven incredible contributions, uh, to our world who, you know, had we labeled and pushed aside, um, at, at certain stages in their their work or learning, um, we would have been, we, we would have lost so, so much. So the, the question where I want to sort of, um, wind us down is to have you all talk a little bit about, um, what the stakes are right now, right? Because, uh, educators are, there's kind of a, a message of the importance of STEM, um, but sometimes it can fall into the category of kind of like, you know, it's like a marketing term or jargon and it doesn't mean enough. And one of the reasons I was really excited to have this conversation is because we don't talk enough about um, what what math uniquely brings. And then um, outside of what it uniquely brings, what it also shares in common with uh, your success in the ST Um, right. And any other place where you're, you're interested in, in growing and participating in the world. Right. So, um, I wanted to see if you would reflect a little bit on, uh, you know, we're, we're obsessed at the moment. The media parents are obsessed. Educators are obsessed with the idea that we need to produce these, uh, geniuses of STEM, um, to, to face the problems of our world. But the question I was hoping you would respond to is, uh, what do we lose if we're not as obsessed with updating the practices of yesterday? Uh, What are the stakes and um, how can we help reframe people's thinking about um, what success in math looks like.
1: Wow, there's people who are saying that disabilities are design flaws in the environment. And I believe in that too. I mean, it's like the way we, a teacher, you know, and we're all teachers. I, I mean, I'm not out here to blame teachers, but the way we set up a learning activity can either enable or or disable a learner to have access to, to that activity. So I think it's very important for, for us to be aware of that, that the way we set things up can set things up for, for kids. To be successful or not to be successful, and then in terms of labels, um, I mean certainly disability categories they have their place and they're important, you know, in schooling for things such as for kids to get services that they uh, may um, may need. And so there's a place for having you know diagnostic categories, but I think for for the day to day practice of a teacher, they're relatively meaningless because you know having a learning disability or having a condition such as ADD tells you very little about the specific child in front of you because it can mean very different thing you know two children with a learning disability can look very different mm-hmm. because it, the spectrum is just so large so sure. what we are encouraging te- teachers to do is to really take a much finer grain look on, you know sort of on a day-to-day basis or over time to get an understanding of students learning profiles and also to recognize that that kids are not stuck in their you know in their patterns of strength and weaknesses that you can develop them, uh, which you know. Can, you know, if you think of kids just in terms of disability categories, they're sort of stuck in that. You know, they're stuck as being ADD, or they're being stuck as you know having dyslexia. But in order for teachers to to make day-to-day decisions about how to set up learning activities. It's much more productive to think of the nuances and the specific areas of strength and needs that their students bring in to try to eliminate barriers that are not necessary to get the content across.
2: Yeah. So I think um, Babette just said many very important things, but I like to summarize or say it in, in a phrase in the sense that what, what I ask teachers to do, I think what we ask teachers to do, is to shift from focusing on teaching to focusing on learning. To look at a single child and to say, how does this child learn best? And what our teachers find is when they plan for that child, who is the bet brilliantly named that, that child the outlier, and plan for the outlier, we get a deeper understanding of the whole class. And teachers are consistent about that. They really say, wow, I thought, how do I find time to do this? Well, it just falls right into place. And it takes them you know, one or two sessions to get the feel for it. But then they say, I plan for the outlier. And I have something for the whole class. And I know how that out, the way I plan for the outlier is I say, what are his or her strengths? And how does he or she learn best? And they then find that they're much more successful. Mm-hmm. And they feel better about what goes on in their classroom.
3: I'm thinking what we're saying is we want to remove the stigma of learning and that teachers and students uh, should view themselves as allies. That we're, we're in this together, uh, figuring out together uh, what makes your kind of mind learn that. And that might entail uh, co-constructing um, strategy that we could uh, try out that would um, help you to function uh, more optimally in the classroom at large, but in our particular context when doing uh, mathematical uh, tasks.
0: My last question for you all is um, just to, to uh, kind of in, in summary, now that, we at the beginning of this conversation i asked what you had hoped to uh gain from the project and i'm curious at this stage what if you had one takeaway that you feel like um math for all has really contributed that um is is most critical what do you feel it is marvin let's start with you
2: i guess what i've been thinking about lately is that Time is usually the issue that teachers point to as getting in the way of doing all this you know great stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and really, I see that teachers, when they get involved with this, they have the time because they start to appreciate the power of asking kids to think. And then they see the carry forward into their other class activities whether they be math or something else and that's been very gratifying and uh, the related thing is this uh the teaching to the outliers and the focus on learning uh teachers just are so thrilled to be focusing on learning you know to be able to think about that Rather than to have to do page and verse about a textbook, mm-hmm. they can take a textbook and they can say, oh, what's the math here and what's the learning that I want? Now let me think about what I'm going to do.
0: Yeah,
2: And it's um, it's not like we're telling them to use the math for all textbook. We're telling them to use their own children as their guide. And that's been wonderful and effective. Like I said, it takes a couple of sessions. You know, we do five full days and it takes two full days for them to really start to buy into it. Well, that's pretty good. Yeah. Like I said, I feel good about it. Nesta, how about you?
3: One teacher is not to lose sight of the fact that teaching is dynamic, not static and that they should not feel confined to that uh, teacher's manual or script that says to them, this is what you need to be doing at this time, but that they use that as a, a guide to help them create opportunities for their students uh, to, pro- to approach the math lesson in a way that is compatible with the students' um, kind of mind, and in doing so, this is one of the ways that teachers could be creating that culture of differentiation yeah. in their learning uh, milieu.
0: It's great, um, Babette. I wanna I wanna uh, wind up with you and and also ask. Um, you specifically to also, uh, once you have had a chance to answer, um, tell us more about where to find info, um, give a little plug for Math for All and where to find more info about the work and research if people want to follow up and um, learn more, read the papers that have come out of it, et cetera, follow follow you all.
1: Yeah. So first about my, the biggest takeaways. I mean, I would echo what Marvin and Nesta have been saying. Uh, You know, the complexity of learning, I think we get to appreciate more and more the longer we work with teachers. The complexity of learning on part of students, just as much as in part of teachers as well. Um, And the need to uh, find ways to um, reach teachers that are effective. I mean, a lot of the professional development research shows that, you know, you know, has difficulty showing impact. And, and, and that's perhaps because uh, we haven't really found ways, you know, the field that is, you know, to, to, to reach teachers um, in a deep and meaningful way. And we're, we're sort of trying to, we're trying to experiment with different ways of doing that by um, using video by embedding our professional development deeply in teachers' practice and and uh, asking teachers to reflect on their practices. I mean I think that's a very powerful tool um, One of the things is specifically in our area about you know making math accessible, teachers always come to us at first and say, "Give us strategies you know." I want teaching strategies. Tell me what to do with this child. And we have to work really hard to discourage them from this notion because we can't teach them strategies. I mean, we can teach them strategies, but that's not the solution to that problem. Teachers need to be encouraged to be problem solvers and, and to become close observers of their students so that they better understands how their students learn. Um, And it sort of goes to what Marvin was saying is that the focus needs to be on learning, not on teaching. It's like, if we can help teachers better understand how their Mm. students learn, then they'll know how to teach. Mm. It'll follow. The teaching will follow, you know, It's, it's the understanding what is needed. What does this child need? You know, then, then you can sort of figure out, then you problem solve and you figure out, Yeah you know how, how you can help that child um, and it's like there's no standard there's no across the board answer because every child is different i mean there is sort of a bag of tricks that we can teach teachers but it won't tell teachers what to use with yeah. this particular child in this particular moment you know and that's where teachers need to become problem solvers and that's what we're sort of working with them on to sort of encouraging them empowering them to become problem solvers um, in their classrooms and uh, so we have a website, um, which we can. Um,
0: yes, I will put it. I will put it in the show notes. Um, but if uh, tell us okay. what it is, so that folks listening who uh, can just punch it to a URL into a UR, into a, uh, a browser. The
1: website is mathforall. .edc.org and that has a lot of our um, research on there. We also have um, a small video clip which may be uh, of interest to people that sort of shows a little bit, illustrates a little bit of our work that we've done in Chicago um, and, um, and we're you know uh, inviting people to get in touch with us if they'd like to have more information. And, so uh, uh, folks who want to, who want to
0: contact you all can do it through math for all just like it sounds, .cct.edc.org. Or if you Google Math for Mm -hmm. All, you will uh, find the group. Nesta, Marvin, Babette, thank you so much for joining and having the first of uh, what I hope is more conversation about the M in STEM. Thank you all for joining.
2: Thank you, Mark. Thank you, Mark. It was a, a real pleasure. Really well done.
0: For more info about advertising with us, charitable sponsorship, or if you have show ideas you want to share, find me on Twitter at M.A. Lesser. The tracks in this podcast were produced by Leroy Tindy, a guest in episode zero, an Ithaca bomber, an engineer of digital things and fresh beats. Find him on SoundCloud at Air Tindy Beats. No Such Thing is produced by me, Mark Lesser, a learner like you, and our show notes can be found at nosuchthingpodcast.org. This show would not be possible without the support from the good people at Mouse, a national youth development nonprofit that believes in technology as a force for good. Find us online at mouse dot org